0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. In the uh, blue Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 599. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We give thanks to the Lord for His Word. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come to your word this morning with thanksgiving for its truth and its power. And pray, Father, that as we think about it, as we feed on it, that that truth would be deeply etched into our minds, and into our hearts, that its power would give us power to live for you, to live as your people in this world. And Father, pray that as we study your word, we would fellowship with you, the one who spoke this word, who inspired it and has preserved it to this day for our benefit, for our encouragement, for our hope. Father, we thank you. Pray for your blessing on our study, on your word preached to the building up of your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Comfort, comfort my people. When do people need to be comforted? Well, when they are sad, when they are brokenhearted, when they receive bad news. That's exactly where God's people were when this message was given, this message to declare comfort. They had received bad news because in response to their waywardness, their sinfulness, God has promised that He will bring judgment on them. He will bring discipline to His people by means of the Babylonians. That uh, what He preserved them from with the Assyrians when they came right up to the walls of Jerusalem, but no farther, that He would not from the Babylonians. And indeed, they would overrun Jerusalem. They would take it. People would be taken into exile. And, uh, it was, it was bad news. It was scary news. We see this in chapter 39, verse 6, just a few verses before our text today. Uh, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and all which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In part, that was in response to Hezekiah's own pride in showing off the storehouses of of Jerusalem. But in part, that was part of a larger uh, act of discipline the Lord was bringing simply for the sin and waywardness of his people. Bad news indeed. Indeed. And yet, just as quickly here in chapter 40, verse 1, is this message of comfort. Both are looking into the future. The Lord not only threatening this discipline for his people, but also the promise of comfort and restoration in the mercies of God. But you don't have to go back a few thousand years to find people who are hearing bad news, and you don't have to go back a few thousand years to find people who are in need of comfort. Uh, We live in this world, and in a sense, even as God's people, are a people in exile. We live among a foreign people who speak a different language, who operate in an entirely different way, uh, who develop a different culture than we do as God's people. We are in it. We work in it. We live in it. We play in it. And to some sense, we enjoy it, and hopefully we are salt and light to help preserve it and illuminate it. And yet we're not home. We are outside of our true country, a new heavens and a new earth. And because we live in this exile, uh, life can be hard. We are often sad over things that happen, even brokenhearted. Uh, It seems that uh, we receive bad news uh, on uh, a frighteningly regular uh, schedule. Life throws us curveballs that we weren't expecting, weren't looking for. And uh somewhat ironically, Christmas seems for many people to exaggerate that, to aggravate that. Uh, because Christmas seems like it should be a happy time and everyone else seems to be happy. But for some people, it is a painful time, but it's only because they don't seem to be having as good a time as the songs say that they should be having. And maybe other people seem to be having. Uh, for other people, Christmas may bring painful memories of uh, times with loved ones who are no longer uh here or even no longer in their lives it can be all kind of reasons that this particular time of year may be especially sad and difficult. But it's into even that kind of situation that the the word of God comes and speaks comfort to us. Speaks to us good news. The well, question is, as we look at this passage, as God is intending to comfort his people, how does the gospel bring us comfort as we live in this exiled time in which we live? In between both receiving our salvation, but awaiting the fulfillment, the completion of it. Well, as we look at this passage, uh, we see that. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. Uh, Literally, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. This is received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. So we look at these verses. It's it's indicating that the time of suffering is ending. It will end. It will come to an end, that time of discipline, time of chastening. Her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. That's a little ambiguous. What does that mean? It could mean that she has received double the blessing for the suffering she has endured. And in fact, Isaiah uses that expression, the word double, that way in chapter 61. In verse 7, he says, Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. So it may well be he's saying they, they receive back double in blessing for the suffering they endured. Or it could simply mean they've received sufficient discipline, sufficient suffering. Now, no human suffering can ultimately atone for our sins. Their, their iniquity is pardoned because of Christ. Our iniquity is pardoned because of Christ. But he's simply maybe saying that the, the suffering they have endured, the chastening they have received is sufficient to, to do in them, to work in them what I want to accomplish. Well, what are some ways then, as we get into the voice crying, uh, some ways that the Lord comforts us with his good news? Well, first of all, as we look at this, it tells us the Lord comforts us with his own presence. It, our Lord is not a God who is distant, not a God who... Uh, Really speaks to us uh, from afar, but a God who draws near to us, and we see that in verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, "Prepare the way of the Lord; make straight in the desert a highway for our God." Should be familiar words They occur also quoted there in uh, Mark chapter one that we read in the New Testament reading. Of every valley shall be lifted up, the low places. Raise up the mountains and hills made low. In other words, preparing this smooth highway, this way for the Lord to come. The rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it all uh, together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So so prepare the way and raise the low places, lower the high places, smooth out the, the rough places. Why? Because the Lord is coming. The Lord is approaching and a way needs to be prepared for him. He's going to come and his glory will be revealed. Now, what is he referring to here? Well, referring to uh, certainly restoration of his people, but not just restoring them from their exile in Babylon, but a much bigger restoration. And scripture very clearly indicates that this is a prophecy Pointing toward that one who did go before the Lord to prepare the way. John the Baptist. That he was the forerunner and he did what this is describing. He was the one who prepared the way, not literally, not, not just in terms of actual terrain, but spiritually to go before the Lord to call people to repentance, to baptize them as an expression of that repentance, and so prepare not the terrain, but to prepare the terrain of people's hearts to receive the Lord, because the Lord was coming. But it wasn't just a spiritual approach, was it? No. He was, he was preparing the way for the actual physical, incarnational ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. But rather than Christ just coming and beginning his ministry, he knew that the people needed to be prepared. And so John the Baptist was the one. Of course, they were a little confused. They said, are you the Messiah? What are you doing here? Who are you? And uh, John just magnificently never deviates from who he is, not as the main event, but the forerunner, the one who goes before. No, I'm not the Messiah. Yes. There's coming one after me uh, whose, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Yes, I baptize with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the real deal. He's the one I'm simply preparing the way for. And that's a fulfillment here of what Isaiah is speaking about. Preparing the way for the glory of the Lord. The, the, The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. That word is not accidental. John was preparing the way for the Lord to come. And just like it says here, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The word became flesh. We beheld his glory as one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John the Baptist isn't here today. Nevertheless, his his work of preparation still goes on. Think about people who've come to know Christ. Think about your own experience. And how the Lord has done things in your life that have prepared the way to bring you to himself. Maybe it was simply Christian parents who from infancy taught you the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Uh, so that from your very first memories, you remember hearing the gospel. That's the Lord preparing the way for his glory to come. Or maybe you became a Christian as an adult. And yet you look back even at events before that conversion and you see how God used people. How God planted seeds, how God was at work preparing that way for his glory to be revealed to you and revealed in you. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, at Christmas we celebrate the coming of Emmanuel, which means God with us. God didn't communicate with us simply from a distance. God didn't redeem us from a distance. He came into this world and lived here among us, and experienced life here in this world in all of its brokenness and sinfulness. And so we're comforted by the fact that God doesn't keep us at arm's length. He comes to us. He is with us. He's present even now, of course, now by His Holy Spirit, uh, and then one day with us in a new heavens and new earth. So that that is comfort to us, that the Lord comforts us with His presence, that He draws near to us. that God doesn't just say, approach me. God approaches us in salvation. But there's a second way that this passage speaks to this comfort that we receive in the gospel, and that is that the Lord comforts us with his word. The comfort of presence is very powerful. That was something Job's friends seemed to know at the beginning, but seemed to forget later on when they were trying to explain everything. Sometimes the best comfort isn't words. It's just presence. It's just to be there, to be present with someone, to weep with them, to, to hurt with them uh, in a way that really goes beyond what words can do. But words are important, too. God didn't just come and was here with us, but he also spoke. And verses 6 through 8 speak to that. Again, all of these are very familiar passages to most believers. Verse 6, a voice says cry, and I said, cry what? Now, the ESV ends the quotation there. Some interpreters see it as continuing, that he says, what shall I cry? Because after all, all flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. What can I cry out that will make any difference in this world of suffering? In this world where nothing lasts, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are just grass. Why cry out? You know, they're under God's judgment. What difference will it really make? Now, that's, that's an interpretive call. Uh, the, the quotations there are, are an editorial decision. They weren't there in original Hebrew as it was written. And so it's a little difficult to know exactly when the quotation ends, whether all flesh is grass is, is simply the one asking, what shall I cry? After all, all flesh is grass and, and so forth. We don't know. But the point is is well taken either way. Uh, it's true. He points out the fact that humanity is is transient here today, gone tomorrow. It's a rather bleak view, really. I wonder if it didn't come right out of Ecclesiastes or something. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. Um, It is interesting to contemplate people in their lives. I don't know about you. I find cemeteries fascinating, um, maybe because I find history fascinating. And those tombstones don't merely mark a grave. They mark a life. They mark a history. Uh, It may be a very short history. It may be... A long history, 90, 100 years, maybe more, as you read when they were born, as you read when they died. And you think about the fact that this was a real person. This was a, a, per, a person who at one time was held in their mother's arms, a person who learned to walk, a person who learned to talk, maybe learned to write, maybe do all kinds of things, maybe famous things, maybe things people never, ever knew about. But they lived a lifetime, just like we're doing now in that lifetime, which maybe seemed like in their early years would go on forever, eventually came to an end a long time ago. And it reminds us that human, human life is transient in this world. It may seem like it will go on forever, but of course you know it, it won't. But for most of you, that's still a, a pretty hypothetical prospect for some of you not so hypothetical. All flesh is grass. All its beauty, all the beauty of a human life is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Uh, whether specific judgment or just this, the, the curse, the fall in this world. Surely the people are grass. That's not overly comforting, is it? Well, No, but it is realistic. But notice the counter. If that's the speaker saying, what shall I cry? Here's the situation. The answer is found in verse 6. Yes, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Humanity and its beauty may be transient, but God's word is not. God's word is not here today and gone tomorrow. God's word stands forever. The word of the Lord as he speaks it. The word of the Lord written for us here. Now, what this means is not so much that this particular Bible is going to last forever. I'm doing my best to try to wear it out. What it does mean, though, is that the truth that that Bible speaks, the promises that that Bible gives to me and to you, will last. They will stand. They will not come to an end. And that is comforting. Because you think of all of the things that God has spoken for our salvation, for our hope, for our joy. Those are things that are real. They're things that are lasting, things that will endure after even this entire world as it is now is is gone. Yes, all flesh is grass. Yes, the flowers fade. But God's word will stand forever. You think about it in the New Testament uh, when Jesus was teaching in, uh, in John chapter 6, starts teaching of himself as, as his body is true bread, his blood is true food. Uh, he he demonstrated, of course, in the breaking of the bread, the the feeding of the 5,000, but then starts to talk of himself as the spiritual bread, the true bread that comes down from heaven. And then people started struggling with that, having difficulty with that. And some of them didn't follow him anymore. Some of them turned away and walked away from Jesus, which to us is staggering, Now, we think, well, if I could just see Jesus or hear him myself, it would be so much easier to believe. No, it wouldn't. There were people, plenty of people who heard Jesus and saw Jesus and even in a passive way participated in the miracles of Jesus and walked away in unbelief. And, you know, that that great question Jesus asks his disciples, you know, it's as though people are just sort of deserting him in scads and finally... (laughs) Yeah, you have the disciples kind of watching this and standing around and Jesus looks up and says, are you going to go too? And, uh, and Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. And Peter recognized that. The Holy Spirit testified to his spirit that this is truth, that this is real, that this is worth dying for, that this is worth living for. Because Jesus spoke the words of eternal life. No one else did. And Peter recognized there simply was nowhere else to go, that the word of God stands forever. The word of God yields eternal life. The word of God, the scriptures cannot be broken. So God comforts us with his presence. He comforts us with his word and all of the promises and the good news that it contains. But then he also comforts us with his Power, with his power. Suppose that you had found out that you had cancer. And a dear friend came and just sat with you and cried with you. And even, uh, even read some scripture and spoke uh, some of God's word to you, which is a great encouragement. What they couldn't do is say, I heal you, and you're all better. But God can. He comes near to us. He speaks his words of comfort and joy to us. But then we recognize that here is one who has real power to make it better. Not just to comfort, but to comfort us as he makes it all better. The Lord comforts us not only with his presence and his word, but with his power. Look at verse 9. Or let's actually jump down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. You know, when Jesus came, part of the way that was demonstrated was through the miracles. That he did things that human beings just can't do. He made blind people see. He made lame people walk. He made dead people live. People can't do that. Jesus can and not only his, his power to, to, to rule, his strong arm to rule, but his reward is with him, his recompense before him. His power to reward, to replace, to replenish, and also to protect us. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see his care, his protection his love, he carries us close to his heart. You know, his power, his power to, to rule, to order the events of our lives. Not just working in us personally, but working in this world we live in. And to uh, reward us and to protect us in the midst of all of this. And so the Lord comes to us, yes, with, with his presence, with his words, but he also comes to us with his power, in short, his power to save. Because of who he is as, as God, but also because of what he did in going to the cross. Because somehow our iniquity had to be pardoned, and the only way that could happen is if his justice against it was satisfied. And so it was in, in Christ as he died on the cross, so that his power is also there to forgive, to heal. And the day is coming, yes, when there will be no more suffering and no more tears. And that's good news. But notice particularly here, who is to declare that news? This is in verse 9. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Who is to declare this good news? The people of God. Who declares to the world the salvation of God? Who declares the good news? Zion, the people of God. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Say that we're the recipient of bad news. Now they're the herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. We celebrate Christmas because the Lord came. His presence here with us. We celebrate Christmas because the Lord speaks to us good news that arises out of that incarnation. And we celebrate Christmas because the Lord comes not just to be here with us, not just to speak words of comfort to us, but through His death and resurrection to make it better so that there is real hope of real healing and of real life. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, which is more familiar, I think, to most of you, and the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which may be familiar to some of you, are both excellent uh, excellent instruments for teaching to ourselves and to our children the truths of the Scriptures. But their approach is rather different, even beginning just with the very first question. The, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with, What is the chief end of man? It's very transcendent. It's very big picture. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What is all of this about? And of course, you know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Absolutely true. Somewhat abstract, somewhat transcendent, very much big picture, but absolutely true and a great answer and a great place to start. Why are we here? What is this all about? The Heidelberg Catechism starts from a, a little different point of view. It starts from a place that really is is much more personal, maybe a little more urgent. Some have described it as a little more warm. They ask this question: Question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? See, so the, the the Westminster Catechism begins with, "Why are we here?" Heidelberg begins with, how can I live here? A little more urgent. And the answer, what's your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's also longer than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They get right to the point. What is my comfort in living in this veil of tears, this life, and with the prospect of death? And they give that magnificent answer. And that really gets down to it, doesn't it? In fact, we can condense that Heidelberg answer to just one word. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Jesus. That's it. What is your answer? I don't know that you can recite the Heidelberg answer or not, but whether you recite it or read it, is that your answer as a mere answer to a question, or is that your answer in response to the pains of this world and the certainty of death? lest of course, Christ returns first. Is it a catechism answer, or is it your answer? Comfort, comfort my people. With what? Well, with the good news. With the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come into this world. And you've spoken your truth to us. And more than that, in your power, you order the events of our lives and you Died and rose from the grave to accomplish our salvation. Lord, what might, what power. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for this good news of the gospel. Lord, may we never take it for granted. May it become never become so familiar that it ceases really to comfort. Father, we also pray that we would be faithful to be a herald of this good news, certainly, Lord, to receive it and benefit from it ourselves but also to declare it to a world that so badly needs it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.